A few quick notes before we start this episode. This episode was shot before all of the recent events within the crypto market, so we thought this would be great to provide listeners to an introductory topic on regulation. Quick disclaimer, our guest today does work with Lawrence and I at Consensus. Welcome to Delegate. I'm Cameron O'Donnell, a DAO governance strategist. And I'm Lawrence Smith, a DeFi and DAO token builder. Hello, welcome to the latest episode of Delegate. Today we have Bill Hughes on. Would you like to kick us off, Bill, with a bit of an introduction to yourself, what you do, and how you got into crypto? I've been at Consensus in the legal department for about a year and a quarter. Prior to that, I was at the Department of Justice, where I worked for the Deputy Attorney General and handled a range of law enforcement policy, regulatory policy, litigation, and other related issues from that position. Before that, I I did operations at the White House and I did white shoe litigation at a law firm both in D.C. and New York. And my job at Consensus is to analyze the regulatory landscape as it exists today from the perspective of our company and then also thinking ahead not only as to what software we are developing and we will be developing in the future and the regulatory implications of those issues, but also just merely how the landscape, the regulatory landscape is going to be changing in the future. So Bill, as the Director of Global Regulatory Matters at Consensus, we follow a lot of your work and I'm sure our listeners do as well. Can you talk a little bit about some of your most recent work, like the comments to the U.S. Department of Treasuries? The White House, back in the beginning of, it was either mid-spring, I believe, memory serves, they issued an executive order asking all different agencies to essentially report back on a variety of different general subject matter as it related to crypto and blockchain, that was within their purview. So for Treasury, they were looking at payments, they were looking at illicit finance, they were looking at market stability, DOJ was looking at money laundering and other types of illicit activity on chain. I do think some of the reports are actually pretty good. Not good as in, I'd like this to be the state of things, but I actually thought that they did a pretty admirable job of being even-handed. Whereas four or five years ago, they may have been definitely very one-sided, one-sided and negative. It impressed upon me that agencies, especially Treasury, has a pretty, I think, comprehensive, sophisticated understanding about all the risks that a that all that these blockchain spaces pose, given their current size and given where they're going in terms of their adoption. They're huge pockets where the sophistication is very low with respect to this subject matter. But there are a number of subject matter experts who actually understand the space pretty darn well and are not incentivized to wear rose-colored glasses on stuff that I think people in the space generally recognize as being a problem but maybe feel disincentivized to talking too much about as a problem. So I just hope going forward that efforts like that will yield serious policy conversations both with industry and inside of the ecosystem in that to the extent we are regulating any of this stuff, we're doing so so carefully and thoughtfully and not prematurely, which is a little bit of my concern about regulating DeFi. And so, Bill, it's 
look, it's no secret that the month of October yielded some pretty interesting vulnerabilities and hacks for large sums of money. This begs the question, when do regulators take notice? And so a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with the regulatory landscape. Would love for you to give just an overview of all the different players in the space. So things like Congress, Senate, uh, different regulatory bodies and so forth. Yeah. So I'll limit my answer to the United States because you got to, this whole issue, this whole subject matter area is complicated by the fact that Europe operates very differently. UK operates differently, each of which are going to regulate this stuff as it touches their jurisdiction. And we may get a very balkanized approach to crypto regulation where different jurisdictions have meaningfully different rules. But with just the United States, this gets additionally <laughs> complicated because there's a federal government and state governments. Let's yep. set aside state governments right now. Got it. State governments do regulate in meaningful ways some economic activity, but the regulations and the laws that are going to impact crypto the most are going to be the ones at the federal level. Those laws have to be passed by Congress. That used to be a much more passing of laws was used to be a much more common occurrence on big ticket items. In recent history, meaning the last couple of decades, the trend has been overwhelming to outsource that type of policymaking activity to the executive branch. And this is problematic on many in many facets, but this is something that's probably not going to be allowed to continue with crypto. And I'll explain why. So Congress generally writes the laws. Who sits in Congress matters both in the um, on the House of Representatives level and at the Senate level. It matters very much. We've seen a dynamic so far where the current leadership in the Senate, for example, is very skeptical, if not outright hostile, to blockchain, Web3, crypto, whatever name you want to put on it. And they have not hid that hostility at all. It is less of an element in the current House, but there's still a great deal of skepticism. Layered on top of that is the fact that, as a general matter, when Democrat majority controls the Senate, and or the House, those majorities for most in most respects seem to be a little bit more willing and eager to actually create new regulations yeah. that give government a greater role in whatever needs to be regulated. As a general matter, Republican majorities in either house tend to not do that. Again, those are big generalities, there are exceptions. There's just sometimes just not a lot of common ground found on questions of like, how do you regulate crypto? But you also have the fact that there are certain people in power right now over particular committees and organs of the Congress. They would be in favor of much more burdensome and draconian and limiting regulation. So other people on the committee who don't deal with them, they tend not to be able to agree for the most part. They haven't really passed any laws. The... Impetus has moved to the executive branch to fill any void. The executive branch, by and large, reports to the president of the United States. The exception is with these independent agencies like the SEC, CFTC, FTC, CFPB, all of these different. (laughs) They're more they're focused on financial activity and regulatory and commercial act generally. 
Yeah. And they are, they are a little bit different than the executive branch. In any event, because there aren't laws which apply directly to this, those agencies look to see what authorities they currently have and do their best to understand this new space and say, all right, what in this new space falls in our purview and what should we do with it? And this is how an agency like the SEC says our statutes, which created us and give us our authority, are extraordinarily broad. And we get to call essentially what's in our what's in our purview and what's not. And all of this, almost all of this is in our purview. And other agencies may disagree, the industry may disagree, et cetera. But what we're seeing is the regulate regulatory agencies taking what they believe to be their current authorities and exercising them either through writing rules themselves, which they can do, or enforcing existing rules, which you've seen the CFTC and SEC. Going back a tiny bit, I have a, I have a kind of a drawn-on question. As I, I know you're mentioning that a lot of people are coming much more upskilled and knowledgeable within these agencies of being able to stand crypto in the first place. Where do you think a lot of the hostility comes from or what are the main points against crypto that we can look to address to win them over in these regards? I think in the background, I'll answer your question in reverse. I think in the background, there's always this general skepticism to something new. Sometimes it's like, most pronounced in like different age demographics like the older you get the more skeptical you get for the latest new thing that comes along you know statements that it's the it's going to change the world like you've seen that many times and you're like i don't know if i believe that stuff anymore it sounds pretty scammy to me blockchain i've been looking at this stuff for five years when i started i knew nothing I wasn't even technically <laughs> literate back then. There was It wasn't like I was into tech and then migrated to blockchain. It was actually the reverse. I was always, because I didn't really understand tech and I used computers. I had an iPhone. I understood the internet, yeah. what it meant to use it. But everything behind the screen was just a mystery. And I had zero inclination to even ask questions and because it was all foreign. And I suppose that some of the aversion and hostility is born from just unfamiliarity. It's like you just, it, you maybe you try to understand it and it's hard and you're like, the hell with this. I'm not, I'm not trying. This is, <laughs> this shouldn't be so hard. I, this is wasting my time. But I also think that as I think, it, so that's the base layer. The next layer up is like the, sort of the ethos that crypto came out of was this very libertarian, quasi-anarchist yep. stream of not only the financial system is wrong, but nation states themselves are corrupt and we need to do away with all of it. That sounds utterly insane to most very, people, right? Very uh, cypherpunks. Yeah, precisely. And so... Yeah. That has been dialed down tremendously in recent years. However, when you think about who is part of the policy debate today, there are people who span the spectrum. There are people who generally find themselves crypto advocates, if they have any position on the issue, who tend to be more libertarian, right? They want to each their own, like we should regulate as little as possible. There are those who are on the other side of the spectrum, that that they say actually the greatest friend of humanity is robust pervasive government because only through that well or a well-ordered society which serves everyone's interests can flourish and so government has to be everywhere they are what i refer to 
hopefully not too pejoratively, are the statists. Like they think the state is awesome. And the corollary to that is the state's only awesome if they're in charge. If they're in charge, all the rights can be, all the wrongs can be righted, all the inequity and inequality and predatory behavior that would exist otherwise in the wild can be addressed. But you need a robust, thoughtful, smart, engaged state doing these things. So I think there are going to be plenty of people who actually skew to that latter philosophy of the government is your first and best friend who look at crypto and the ethos behind it and girl no you guys are you guys you you guys are building a, a, an unequal and unjust a chaotic world yep. and that's not what I'm for there's just a sense of unbridled free markets are ones in which the haves and the sophisticates take advantage of everybody else yeah and so this is where you get they get to create the system, and if they don't create it, they know how to navigate it. Whereas the average Joe, and there's many more of them, are left out in the cold. They don't know how to operate as well. They don't have enough resources to really participate at, to the same extent. But I think it's very complicated why people like it or don't like it. Um, and I think that changes over time. But I do think, last point on this, is like over time, as people become more familiar as it seems less foreign, as it seems less predatory, as it seems more useful, yeah. as it just seems more popular, some of this sort of this, this inherent angst and standoffishness and hostility will erode. But that's going to take a lot of evolution of the ecosystem itself and people's exposure. Yeah, I completely agree with you on a lot of points there. And, and I understand some of the angst that's coming through. And I think to honestly it makes sense, like a lot of cryptos is hard to understand. And I think that's one of the sort of the big things we need to do in the industry is make it very easy, make it simple, give the use cases a simple place in people's lives so they can just pick it up and use it. Out of interest, how do you find other nations reacting to, to crypto? From what I've seen anyway, at a very high level, it's a lot of the sort of less developed countries mm-hmm. that are more pro-crypto and then the ones that are more developed first world countries are, tend to be a bit more cautious, slower to react on it. That's, I think, the simplest explanation, which is probably not the full explanation, almost certainly not the full explanation, but they just see a lot of money flowing to the space, maybe not anymore for months or years or whatever this bear market's going to be, but especially in the big run-up, the multi-year run-up, like a lot of investment was going into the space. And jurisdictions that are willing to try new things because they aren't locked into a certain way of doing things like they'll take a flyer on this new crypto blockchain stuff if they can improve and enrich their jurisdiction by being like an early adopter so whether they're going to do it with any sort of lasting results or benefits is to be seen i do think unlike a lot of tech Crypto as it's like theoretically conceptualized could almost certainly make a lot of jurisdictions that kind of been left out because geographically, maybe they're pretty remote. Like Palau is in the middle of nowhere in the ocean. Like, why would you, as long as they got the internet, you, of course you could do crypto. You like, you could be a blockchain developer there. No problem. I hear it's beautiful. So incentivizing projects, incentivizing entrepreneurs to come, that makes a ton of sense. And you just other bigger systems, more established economies, like they got a lot invested in a certain way of doing things. 
Yeah. That just takes time to disrupt. But there there are opportunities for up and coming jurisdictions. But I think if uh, unless those jurisdictions can compete effectively with a place like the United States across a lot of verticals, and that's yeah. hard, then the United then still the U.S. is like one of the best places yeah. to be working in this space. Yes, and those are some absolutely great points. And this this particularly segues well into the next piece of our conversation. The users of Web3 and consumer protection with vulnerabilities, with poorly designed UI, things happen. And so where is the prioritization around consumer protection right now uh, in the regulatory landscape? So from the perspective of a regulator, like somebody sitting in an agency, there, almost all of them are there because there are certain problems or threats or ca- catastrophes yeah. that laws are meant to avoid or mitigate to some degree. The Department of Commerce, for example, big parts of it are the opposite. It's supposed to boost, like it's supposed to be a big champion of American business and go, and often go overseas and yeah. say, hey, you got to try to drum up an investment or introduce domestic companies overseas and say, you guys should let these people into your markets. Most of them are like, there's this parade of horribles, which the world always produces. And we as the government agency are doing our best to prevent them or to clean it up after it happens. And so the protectionism is forefront now. And you said consumer protectionism. I think it would be better if it was thought that way, but in fact, it's more of an investor protection framework, which I think is yeah. taking center stage because we're talking about the thing that sucks all the air out of the room when you're talking about regulation is SEC versus CFTC. Who's going to regulate crypto? Yep. And this assumes that it is only that one of them or both of them that has any sort of jurisdiction here based on what it is. And my argument, and maybe I take this argument too far, is that we place far too much emphasis as an ecosystem on the financial application of a programmable blockchain like Ethereum than on all of its other potential uses, which are cultural, commercial, social. And so just thinking of ETH as an investable asset or just thinking of these tokens as investable assets or just thinking about like a DAO or any sort of smart contract as performing some financial function, I think is incredibly either incorrect or short-sighted or some combination of that and other things. So I, but thinking of the risks in this space as not only being risks that are attendant to investment, because there definitely are those, but it's also to the extent a user is more of a consumer than an investor. What are the right ways to protect them? And I think if we wanted to talk about it in a bit, like the big question facing like a programmable blockchain ecosystem is how to better protect the users. And I think that's best thought of under a rubric of like consumer protection. Yeah. But setting that aside, innovation is always bandied about. It is very cheap politically and very good politically to pound the table and wave a flag about innovation, right? Yeah. Hurts nothing. Everybody's 
for it. But the when the rubber meets the road and say, as a practical matter, what are you doing to support innovation here? You get generally one of two, two responses. One, the response is, we're staying the hell out of your way. Yeah. And that's honestly pretty good as most things go. But the fact is there are things government can do to bolster or just clarify things, which would be good. Or two, they want to support innovation, but only specific kinds of innovation. Innovation that they know is not a, does not have attendant to it a ton of different risks and side effects and all that sort of stuff. So while they're like, yay, innovation, it's not like they're going to clear the road for you without understanding very in very minute detail that what you're going to do and its possible ramifications. Like a big thing that you hear about how certain people on Capitol Hill think about this stuff is they look at crypto and they take this meme of Web3 at face value and they go, we missed the regulatory boat with Web2. We were way too laissez-faire with Web2 and look what happened. We got Facebook we have cancel culture on Twitter, and it's both parties coming at it from different ways, saying how rotten yeah. everything is. We're all slaves for uh, for Google's AI. And they're like, no, what we should have done in the beginning is figured out what all the risks were and regulated against them, and everything would be hunky-dory right now, which just at face value seems like such a ridiculous notion that you, you know. regulate ahead of time all the stuff that hadn't been invented yet yeah. and done so successfully, right? But be that as as it may, like those who are like, yay, innovation are like, yeah, but we got to carefully curate this innovation. So it's not just you guys figuring out what you want to build and going off and building it. It's come talk to us first. We'll let you know if it's okay. Amazing points there. Some of them that stuck out with me is looking at consumer protection and applying an investor protection framework. And so very much so as we're looking at cryptocurrencies a different way, Right, We have to take a consumer protection angle to these. Uh, Really, really cool points there, Bill. I think something else that stuck out from my side is talking about how regulation follows innovation. And we'll we'll discuss a little bit further on here, but, you know, the, the general point for those of us who aren't familiar with regulatory bodies is that when you over-regulate a new industry, you actually stifle growth, right? You you slow it down. And so it sounds like a balancing act when you're applying regulation to what degree the regulation is actually applied. Regulation, I mean, it's undeniable it chills innovation. But sometimes that's a good thing. Oh, we can talk about examples, but you don't want unfettered you don't want the you don't want the open market to be experimenting with like nuclear fission, for example. I yeah. think everybody pretty much understands that would be a horrible permissionless access to nuclear fission around the world. People are like, I don't know. I don't know about that. So sometimes there really are serious risks that regulation should be wielded to mitigate from the get-go. Yeah. But to the extent it's used carelessly or with a too broad brush. And the impact of the regulation is like, if you're found on the wrong side of a line, maybe you get fined. Maybe you're thrown in jail. Like that has actual impacts on the market. And so that's important. But also regulation, there are billions of dollars of economic energy that regulation creates. And that's in the compliance industry. 
Yes. Like you see blockchain analytics to the extent crypto and blockchain continue to get adopted and increase in their utility and use across the globe. The idea that these blockchain analytics firms are just money printing behemoths, I think is you're not paying attention. Yeah. Like, and there's also going to be regulation also spurs innovation in other respects. There are actual problems that, that maybe regulation itself, the threat of regulation spurs a tech solution to reduce the risk. Yeah. And so it could be a catalyst. It could be a punch list. If you guys don't address this one, we're going to have to, and we're going to take a decidedly heavy headed approach. Yeah, definitely. I think it was really interesting. You mentioned about the actually the registry companies or like chain analysis, for example, having a big impact in the space. And I also think it's really interesting to note that like companies like chain analysis aren't just limited to that sort of sector. They're also working in a bunch of areas, innovating across those. For example, they did the Christie's NFT marketplace. They worked with them on that. And yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting to see that they're contributing to innovation across the industry as well as particularly on regulatory matters. One, one area I was, because it's particularly, at least at the time of recording, it's quite recent news, is the, I don't know if the shorthand for it would be MISA or MICA, the Markets Mika. and Crypto Asset, Mika. And just for a bit of context, it introduced provisions on supervision, consumer protection, and environmental safeguards for crypto assets. And it's mm-hmm. what um, Europe have just agreed on. What are your thoughts on that? And how do you think that's going to inform the US's approach to regulation? My thoughts are that it could have been much worse, that it's about the, what they, meaning that they could have been much more heavy handed with stuff that would have been shocking for, say, the United States to regulate in its first go-around. Things like draconian restrictions around the development or use of unhosted wallets, for example, right? That would have been, and has been in the United States, something that would be so far beyond the pale. They were very close to doing that in the European Union. There are a whole bunch of reasons why that, that make me sound like a huge United States homer and me bashing other countries. But I do think there are general approaches to government and regulation and freedom and autonomy that are different from country to country. And that manifests itself in the regulations. So this thing isn't going to be a done deal. It's like practically a done deal, but it's not going to be a done deal until the end of the year. And then once that happens, it goes to each member state in the EU to do some regulating attendant to it, to to regulate up to its standards or to fill in some areas with that, some more finely, uh, finely defined or finely tuned rules. But it's also like the European wide regulators, like the European Securities and Markets Agency. I may Mm -hmm. be butchering that acronym, but it's ESMA. They have to do a lot of rule writing to implement what in some cases are very broad mandates that this Mika law gives them. And so they're going to have to figure out like how to implement this. That's going to take a long time. So a lot of people in the industry, I keep using industry. I like ecosystem more. Bad habits. A lot of people in the ecosystem who engage in policy debates are going to be as a matter of necessity, talking with regulators such as that to help them craft what, in our view, is a, a more productive than destructive regulatory regime. And then all that stuff doesn't really come into play f- until 2024, earliest, if not later. So it will be 
getting a lot of ducks in a row over the foreseeable future. And during that time, it's one thing that I think the regulation over in the EU and prospective legislation in the United States, the one thing that makes me a little bit nervous about that stuff is it does not adequately define, in my view, the line between CFI and DeFi. And so these rules, which are by and large written to regulate a CFI ecosystem, there is some, as far as I can tell, wiggle room in the instructions given to these like actual administrative agencies as to the types of rules they could write and apply to like actually more decentralized constructs that really probably where it's maybe premature or at least the people passing the law really hadn't thought that far ahead, but the agency goes and does it anyways. Those are the areas where I think it, I'm, I think the most productive engagement is probably due and I'm least comfortable with just throwing my hands up and saying, oh, they'll figure it out because I, I think it'll be tough for them to figure it out without a lot of help. Just a minor point on that, which I thought was really interesting, is a lot of the rules that they apply for CFI can't really be applied to code. I would actually love to jump into the whole liability side of things and and who we discussed with on another episode of Tony Truth around limited liability companies and so on and how that's being used by a lot of DAOs just to limit liability for founders or whatever getting absolutely hammered by any agency. What are your thoughts on that and how do you think that plays into DAOs maybe very decentralized and that they have people living in all parts of the world and how do you really hold people accountable to something like that? Well... It's pretty complicated. So let's start with the limited liability company as being some <laughs> sort of invincibility cloak. Yeah. So the purpose of incorporation, the purpose of a limited liability company status is that the people in the company, running the company, are not held personally responsible for liabilities of the company. The company itself is the sole um, source of compensation for any liability that arises. So what that doesn't mean is that, so that's generally true in in, in, in the contractual case. Like I bring a contract action against your company. I don't get to necessarily go after you, the person in the company. I'm stopped at the company and the company's assets are essentially what I'm making a claim on. And in certain instances, like tort, like injury, where you failed to, where the company failed to exercise due care and I get hurt. Just because you work the company and if you were operating according to how the company operates and all that, like I can't, I probably can't go after you. That said, there are specific laws that say the fact you work in a company does not absolve you of personal responsibility for what you did. The criminal law works this way. If you knowingly violated a criminal law like mail fraud or money laundering or whatever, while you're in a company, and you knew it was illegal and you did it, they can prosecute you. There's reasons why they won't in many states, but it doesn't make you not a criminal. It doesn't like, oh, like they can charge you. If in the investor protection context, there is something called control person liability. 
Whereas it's not just the company as a whole that's responsible for being open and forthright and honest about the facts of a particular investment or some offering it has. It's like the people who run that company, who are signing those documents with all those disclosures in it, are also personally liable for the stuff in it. You can't just hide behind the company. So yeah, you want... I think the reason for a corporate wrapper is to avoid this blanket. It's the only thing we can analogize it to is a partnership. And in a partnership, we can go after anybody. So let's just find. And then as a practical matter, what you do is you go after the easiest, deepest pocket you can go after. And that's who you sue. And maybe you sue a bunch of them, right? And maybe someone doesn't show up, you secure a judgment against them, and then you continue to go against the other guys. That's how it works. So to avoid that, you wrap yourself, right? But that doesn't mean that if you're engaging in commodity derivative fraud, that all of a sudden they're like, it was a corporation, we can't do anything. No, if you're like running whatever was being done in the Dow or any decentralized construct, that that was the illegal activity, they will find a way to come after you. Setting that aside, we can, I'll mention this briefly and then you can ask further questions. But yeah, I think the focus on decentralization, just like limited liability, LLC status or incorporated status is like some invincibility cloak. This focus on decentralization as being some, um, some sort of legal category that has any sort of basis in the law is protecting you from the consequences of nefarious or even negligent acts. I think it's just, it's asking the wrong question. Yeah. There's nothing in the law that says if it's not decentralized, then we can enforce consumer protection laws. It's like, that's the reason why nobody can describe decentralization because it has no legal meaning. There's no concept there. In effect, what it's saying is, It's so diffuse, there's really nobody that we can make do our bidding to police it, and there's really nobody that makes a lot of sense to go after, right? So I I think fundamentally the question is, it's one more of structure. Like from a policy perspective, don't ask, is it decentralized? Say, what is is it software? Can someone can change that software? Do you have the key? Are you controlling it? it? Could the software just as easily be on a cloud and accessible that way? Like it, and it has all the functionality, just like you, you like you had it on an on-prem server. Those are more complicated questions, but so how do we think about it in context of a DAO? A little more focused on the decentralized organizations. I know we we spoke a little bit about it, but when it comes to applying regulation, when it comes to regulatory enforcement, what are some considerations from the DAO's point of view? So, when I practice law. You know, we in New York and in D.C., we did a lot of regulatory investigations and defending some suits or prospective suits by financial regulators. And when at DOJ, a lot of what we did was bring lawsuits, whether civil or in a lot of instances, they were criminal prosecutions. And the question is always, is this worth our time? There is a lot of activity that can be investigated and a lot of cases that can be brought. And that prosecutorial and enforcement discretion pervades this process. You are not 
the subject of an investigation and subject of a lawsuit or a prospective lawsuit or criminal charges unless a lot of people are all convinced that it's worth the resources. This is better to do than a lot of other things we could. It's very expensive, very time consuming. So it has to make a lot of sense from a resource perspective. So there are those outfits which look very much the same in terms of how they're structuralized, their DAOs and whatnot, but they're doing different things. Like the risk they pose society generally is fundamentally different based on the type of activity they are purporting to take on. Dao, as far as I understand it, is really looking to either facilitate the trading of or investing in regulated derivative products and offering that up to U.S. persons. And to do that, to offer it up to U.S. persons, you need to be regulated and supervised and all that stuff. The CFTC's bread and butter. Yep. There are plenty of Constitution Dow. Like, we want to buy a copy of the Constitution. But that is an entirely different construct, right? Like, the purpose yeah. of the Dow is completely different. And maybe how, maybe the purpose of the Dow is like literally to make one decision, raise money and make one decision. Yeah. If the Dow is the purpose is to vote on a protocol, on software, which the DAO controls in some way, and the purpose of the software is to do something explicitly illegal. Maybe not criminal, but just illegal, like something that is regulated and doing it without outside of that regulatory regime is illegal. Depending on how serious it is, how much the regulator cares, of course, they'll go after you. And then the question is, okay, what do they do? They first went after the founders. Of course they do. And the first question is exactly like how involved are you still? Let's say a DAO is perfectly decentralized where nobody does anything more than anybody else in terms of money or time or expertise or authority. Then they'll look around and say, they'll look at other distinguishing factors among them. It's important how it's structured and it's important how it's perceived and how it's marketed or just talked about. We've had similar conversations from the tax realm, from the mm -hmm. operations realm, right? When we discuss legal entities, it really depends on what the goal of that DAO is doing. And that's something that we practice as well in DAO strategy, organizing and setting up that, that DAO. The, so is your hope that these are more examples and that they don't become the norm in terms of various levels of enforcement? It's hard to say. I, at a certain level, I think it's important for regulators to go after yeah. the biggest problems. And those quite clearly are like the truly predatory frauds yeah. that pl play on people's naivete or hopes and dreams to make a quick buck. I think it would also be good for the ecosystem has, I think as it matures and as people get more acclimatized to it and yeah. more familiar with it, use it more. There's just like with the internet, there's sophistication with what's legit and what's not, what's worth their time, what's not will improve. And so the susceptibility of people generally to like these terrible ideas, whether they're criminally terrible or just, just terrible and they're yeah. really risky, the susceptibility will go down. But I do think there's a very laissez-faire attitude in this space right now. It's like a quasi-sophomoric sort of sh shoulder shrug isn't that's hilarious that guy yeah. rugged like everybody should have known better sort of stuff 
as adoption goes up, that becomes a less and less acceptable answer to say, yeah. oh, the bad actors should just be able to allow, it's just be allowed to act with impunity and it's just it's the new way of the world. Nobody's up for that. Like adoption doesn't work if that's the ethos. So yeah. I think there's some maturation there too. But what I hope not to see is, but I'm afraid we're going to see a lot more of it, are these cases where they're either going to, the regulators either going to pick somebody who does, can't or won't fight back and bring a case that goes to court and they get a judgment, or they enter in these settlements, which are not real precedent, but they use them like precedent in bringing other cases or trying to establish what the law is. And they point to them to judges and be like, this is what the law is. Some judges believe them, some ju judges don't. But more of that sort of help yourself define yeah. what the law is in this. We're going to see it. I wish it wasn't such a big part of it, but it's frankly, it's going to be. Cool. I'm loving this conversation and I feel we could chat for another three hours on on this whole topic. Unfortunately, we are at time. So I want to give a last question. If you had any tips, people who want to get up to speed with crypto law and regulation or anything that you want to promote yourself, now's sure. the time. I learned about a lot of this stuff by really crypto Twitter, like back in 2017 when I first got started. Like it was a lot of trial and error trying to find the right people to follow. But if you want to follow me at Bill Hughes DC, I retweet or, or reply to a lot of people who I think have a lot of very smart, insightful, and oftentimes novel things to say about the current legal frameworks, policy as it goes forward, and really both here in the United States and overseas. It's a lot of noise out there. It's important to find the signal. If I can help you do that and you're interested in continuing to learn about this stuff or you disagree with me vehemently and just want to get online and yell at me, <laughs> you now know how. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Bill.